This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hey, everyone. Welcome in a new episode of Radar, our Nextworks podcast, where we want to talk about everything that excites us about innovation and technology in the business world and beyond. In this episode, I have four guests here. Actually, I have three guests and myself. I have uh, Julie, who's our CEO at Nextworks. I have Pascal, our China expert, and I have Peter, our strategy and innovation expert, and myself, Stephen. So in this episode, we're going to talk a lot about China, actually. We're going to talk about uh, the future of education and some other cool topics. Just as a side note, this is the last episode of this season. We're going to take a radar summer break, and the next episode will then be shared in September. If you want to do us a favor, if you enjoyed the previous episodes and this one, feel free to share this one on your social networks. Give us a five-star review if you enjoyed it, and tell maybe two of your friends about this podcast. That would make our day, and we would be very grateful for that. All right, let's dive right into the action. Pascal, I want to start with you because we had one of the largest shopping festivals in China going on, uh, 618, and this was an important one. This was the first big shopping festival after the pandemic, and everyone was curious what will happen with consumption. Will people buy more? Will people buy less? So could you enlighten us what the results are of 618? Well, the results were uh, fantastic. Uh, it means that Chinese are consuming again. And um, this festival is the second largest e-commerce shopping festival in China. The biggest one is uh, from Alibaba on 11th of November. But it's getting very close one to the other in terms of size. But it was quite interesting to look at um, 618. And, and that's actually a festival that was originated by JD.com, the big competitor of Alibaba. And the reason it's 618 is that is the day that this company was established 20 years ago. And so they have this festival now for 10 years almost every year. And this year it was really gone crazy because JD.com, JD itself, which is kind of like the Amazon of China, sold for 50 billion US dollars in goods through their platform. And this is like a shopping festival that lasts uh, two weeks that you can do pre-orders from the 1st of June to the 17th of June. And then on the 18th of June, that day, that's where you need to decide. And that's where the whole shopping craze is going on. So one day, but it's like two weeks of pre-orders. And if you compare that with Amazon Prime, which is about the same period, this was about 12 billion or 11.9 billion US dollars. So it's, it's a huge, and this is just one company as well, which is JD. So the interesting thing about these shopping festivals in China is that it's not just about buying because of discounts, which is often in Black Friday and discount periods in the West. It's also a shopping experience and it's a real like event happening. And so JD did like two big gala events at that time, but it's also about getting new customers. You can compare it a little bit like an auto show where you go like in January in Brussels, you go to the auto salon in, in Dutch and you go there and you look at cars and, and this is the experience that, that it has in China. But the other thing is that it's really for families in China to stock up. And so twice a year on the 18th of June and once on the 11th of November, they're actually stocking up goods for six months. And so the whole family buys together, they can buy within group and that means that they can buy at even better discounts. And it's interesting to look at the categories because that tells a lot about the change of China. 
So one of the most uh, popular categories, I think it's a little bit the same as in the West, is the stay-at-home economy with home appliances, with uh, health exercise or running exercise uh, material, equipment, cooking stuff. But also travel was very popular in China. And that had to do with domestic travel. So travel was crazy in China after the pandemic uh, about a year ago. People started traveling domestically, so they bought like camping and surfing equipment, fishing gear. I mean, things that you wouldn't expect Chinese to actually go surfing in the south of China, but that's what they're doing now. The pet economy has been extremely big because uh, Chinese are crazy about uh, cats and dogs these days, uh, also because they had to stay at home. So a lot of people are alone, and so they get a cat or a, a dog. And, and that was very popular is the AI-driven cat feeders. It's one of the main categories on JD.com's shopping festival. Uh, but also groceries is, is very popular. Uh, so this is all to do uh, with the pandemic environment. And one of the things that I think was really interesting is the health experience. So people really have bought a lot of products on 618 for uh, um, kind of eating well and sleeping well and low carbs and all these things. But also one of the most popular products was a genetic testing kit like uh, 23andMe, uh, it's kind of like testing your genes to see, are you still healthy? So this gives you an idea that the Chinese society has changed its priorities. And so this shopping festival is all about having a more healthy life and stay at home and be comfortable and so on. Now, Alibaba also joins this shopping festival. And so does every big e-commerce platform. And now there's a lot of e-commerce platforms in China. None of them, except a few, are releasing numbers. But it is estimated that uh, Alibaba did about 100 billion US dollars during that festival, which is kind of like the GDP of a country somewhere in, in the world. Uh, so that's in just 24 hours. But what I think is interesting about Alibaba is that they now, for every package that you bought, they give you a carbon emission per order amount. And so you knew how much the CO2 emission you had if you bought that product. And it reduced the emission, according to their calculation, with 17%. Now, that's a lot, but at the same time, there's still 7 billion packages that had to be shipped after this shopping festival. So that's like five times more than there are Chinese. Uh, so it's like crazy, 7 billion packages. And that was an increase of 25%. So even if you have a 17% decrease in, in CO2, you have a 25% increase in packages. It's, it's not that good. A new company that joined a couple of years ago, but now is doing really well is TikTok. So the Chinese Douyin, uh, they also joined that festival. They also don't release numbers, but some people say it's around 70 billion. So lots of money there. And Xiaomi released their numbers, the Apple of China with uh, $29 billion. So that's kind of the shopping festival going completely crazy. The one thing that I think has really changed this year is um, there's two things, actually. One is the anti-monopoly law which means that every possible brand could go on all the platforms. And before that, you often had to choose. And so this also created more offering from the brands. And the second thing is live streaming. It's been completely crazy live streaming in China. This is the trend for 2021. And uh, JD invited 300 celebrities, so stars, to live stream during their uh, festival and 600 CEOs. And so I think if this trend will uh, come to the West, it means that every executive of every company in the West will have to learn how to live stream to promote their products or services, because this is what's happening in China. So this in a nutshell, it's going well in China, consumption is back. 
The only worrying thing I hear, uh, Pascal, is the combination of more cats and more TikTok. I think that is going to <laughs> probably just overwhelm you know, what I'm going to see in terms of cat videos in the next couple of months. That's uh, you know, something to look forward to. Uh, I think it's going to be a catastrophe. <laughs> <laughs> Sharp. <laughs> it's pretty ironic that they don't want to get kids, even if they have time, but the cats and dogs, bam, <laughs> booming like hell. Yeah. Hey, Pascal, I remember last time when we went to JD, just before the pandemic, we went there together. I remember that they were rethinking their delivery methods. Uh, they were saying that on average, we're doing deliveries now in about 30 minutes, but their dream was to go to lightning delivery. I remember that they used that term lightning delivery, which means that you deliver within five minutes after an order. And if they explained how they would do that, they said, you know what, we're going to predict what people will buy before they even buy it. And then we're going to be almost at their doorstep just a few minutes after they push the button. Is that happening now that they managed to get that in place during the pandemic, or is that still a dream of, uh, of JD? None. No, it's, it's happening very much. Of course, you can't predict just as much as you can, but if you look at the number of people that receive their orders on the day itself, it's just incredible. Most of the orders, I think 70% of the orders, uh, Alibaba and JD actually, were delivered within the same day, within the 18th of June. And so they really have got this going. So. I think one of the biggest advantages of JD opposed to Alibaba is the fact that they control their supply chain and their logistics and delivery system. And, and the reason that this is so important today is because this anti-monopoly law where everybody has to be more careful and has to work with everyone, it means that Alibaba cannot use its power against JD anymore. And so now they're looking much more at the supply chain to optimize that rather than look at the consumer and try to convince the consumer and the brands to be on their platform. So I think this is going even faster. And what they told us uh, last time we visited them is actually starting to get implemented really, really fast. Wow, cool. I'm surprised basically that you don't see the same high speed evolution in Western e-commerce platforms. It's going a lot slower, I think. Uh, if if you look at what TikTok announced this week, for instance, for the Western market, they're going to start with their Jump program, which is a third application integration. Uh, they tried it out um, a couple of months ago for the first time with Whisk. Whisk is a recipe sharing uh, platform. So they had a cool TikTok video and then they added a button where you could click and see the entire recipe after you watch the video. You stay within the TikTok platform, but you have access to that recipe and you have more content about that company. And in a later phase, you could add, you know, order the ingredients for this recipe as well. That was a test that they've done. But now during fall, they're going to roll out this jump program um, all over the place. And their goal is to make... TikTok more entertaining, but also more a learning platform where you can discover in a deeper way than what you can do today. If you look at that and you compare that with WeChat, uh, this is the same strategy that WeChat has been doing, creating these mini apps within their ecosystem. I saw that last year alone, WeChat had 250 billion US dollars in transactions with that philosophy. And now we're just going to get started with TikTok here. Uh, and it's clear that they want to make that move from a social platform to an e-commerce platform. Uh, there were some interesting tests that they've done at the end of last year with Walmart, where you could have live shopping 
where Walmart used some influencers to, to demonstrate some fashion items and then people could just select those items and buy them in the platform. So you see that they're doing some tests, they're doing some pilots, they're starting to roll out and they want to basically copy-paste, in my opinion, what WeChat has been doing for a couple of years. But on the other hand, it's a big opportunity for the companies in the West to play more with TikTok. I still meet companies every week that ask me, what should we do with TikTok? And most people just see it as something with strange humor and crazy videos uh, for teenagers. But you see how it's evolving towards a platform where more companies can get opportunities to sell their stuff and to make sure that their content is being seen in a more creative way than before. But I'm, uh, I'm surprised that it goes so slow, to be honest. Yeah, no, it's um, definitely uh, something that is going to change the e-commerce and the social media landscape completely. Now, the article that you mentioned, which I also read, it's quite interesting because what I didn't see in the article is the fact that this has been already available in Douyin, the Chinese TikTok, for two years. Mm -hmm. So it's really um, something that TikTok has been experimenting with for two years now. And if you see how much they sold on uh, 618, uh, you just know that this e-commerce and social is already completely connected. And it's not just Douyin, so not the Chinese TikTok only, it's also the Toutiao, the news app, which is even more popular because there the streaming news is actually very interesting to add links to it because then you can educate people on specific topics that is in the video. And so if you look at a video news on, for example, the shopping festival of, of JD.com, you could get links uh, to understand what their revenue was and or get educated on something else. And so this is already happening. This is what indeed, as you say, we call mini programs in WeChat. It originated five, six years ago with Tencent. And then it went into TikTok. Alibaba did it with Alipay. I mean, there's a lot of companies in China that uh, combine social with e-commerce with learning. And, and uh, I think these three is probably the golden triangle to get uh, any company to sell, teach, and also to have a connection and a relationship with consumers. So it's it's that combination which every brand should be on. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to another topic. Uh, Julie, you're here to talk about the future of work. And um, there was an interesting discussion this week happening at Apple where the narrative of the executives is, guys, you need to come back to the office, but not all employees are agreeing with that. And that resulted in an internal letter where they complained basically about what the executives were thinking about remote work. What, what, what's going on there? Yeah, we've been discussing this in, uh, in earlier episodes as well, that um, a lot of companies are trying to figure out how can we move people back to the office or are we and there are tons of different policies. And back then we also said, like, um, is this really about a strict rule? Is that the thing that is going to work? And we thought no, but apparently the companies still think it is. Uh, and to bridge it to the earlier discussion on consumers, I think if you just mirror that discussion, how technology and human experiences are evolving in the consumer space, I think it's astonishing to see how binary we take the relationship between employees and their companies, because eventually it's an exchange of value between both parties. And Apple, I mean, back in the days, they were a very at-the-office company. So they really had a very strict uh, working from home policy that was just basically not allowed. And we all know the Silicon Valley 
culture, the offices with the perks and the, the free lunches. And I think these days people really realize that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Even if the buildings, etc., were astonishing, it's still not the place where you have full freedom of your life and your time. And I think you can see that now people that uh, have spent a year of being able to plan their time, they're just not accepting that you take back that decision and that freedom from them. So what Apple had done is they said, like, as of September, you should be back in the office for three days. And they were actually very proud on that decision. Like, hey, look at the freedom we're giving you. But uh, that didn't go too well, indeed, as you said, Stephen. Um, they, um, and they said it has to be Monday, Tuesday and Thursday. Yeah, and they decided yeah. which days it <laughs> <Even> was. <that>. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, it's astonishing and I think it's quite ironic how they uh, got together and they wrote a letter, Dear Tim, my friends, Dear Tim, with all the reasons they said, like, this is just crazy. Uh, we don't need that rule to be at our best and, and to show our best value to the company. I think they even got further. They also mentioned the environmental impact of uh, we want you to calculate actually the environmental impact that this rule has. Uh, so they actually even challenging the companies on other factors with this rule. I think it's choosing is losing. I mean, as a company, if you really impose this type of rule on the back to work policy, I think you're losing anyway. People are not accepting those rules anymore after a year of that. I think everybody should have the right to, to be at their best and choose what they want to give to their employer. Mm -hmm. If you see what's happening in the creator economy, Creator economy is booming. It's it's over 1.3 billion of investment. It's it's really increasing like hell because people have discovered a lot of freedom in the value that they can create in other economies. So I, I really think that we're going to see a lot more diversity in jobs. It's sort of the future of work we've been expecting to see since a couple of years. But now the pandemic really made that happen. And I think companies are really struggling with accepting that and with having a sort of system that allows people to be there best selves in the way that they want to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's crazy that some people think that you have to have a rigid system. I was really surprised the other week in, in Belgium, there was this uh, expert, labor expert, and he, he discovered the solution. It was basically the same as Apple. The best thing for everyone is to come three days a week to the office and be two days at home. I mean, why? We, we don't know, but he decided that that was the best solution. Whereas I think it's clearly linked to your personality. I can imagine that some people just love to be in the office five days a week and others just want to stay in their home for five days a week. And it's a matter of figuring out how can people perform best and feel best. There was a big complaint that there's a decrease in belonging because people are not connected anymore. But I think we need to completely rethink how we're going to create that belonging. In the past, we put people in a building and then once a year we go to the Ardennes and do some rope climbing and then we think that we create belonging. I, I think in the future it's going to be more about making the purpose more crystal clear and make sure that people belong to that goal and that they can contribute to the goal wherever they may be. And of course it's really relevant to be together physically, but for other people it's just different. I think it's very, very strongly linked to your personality and we'll have to figure out how to bring that flexibility to the work floor and make sure that we rethink the way that people belong and connect to a, to a company. And it might also be a part of a corporate culture that might be something that is going to be a way to attract talent. I mean, some companies might be more open-minded for this and some won't. And maybe that's going to be things that people will ask. I, I remember when I was 
long time ago, you know, doing my first job interview, we would have questions like, um, what about a vacation policy? I mean, you know, because that was a big thing back then. But this is, I think, the new vacation policy. It's really about how flexible am I allowed to organize my life? I hear what you guys are saying. I do believe that for some companies, it's quite challenging at the moment. And also for some groups, I've heard, for example, quite a lot of my CIO friends say that it's really difficult to maintain contact with software developers, for example, because software developers and IT people in general are probably not the most social category out there. I can imagine, Stephen, that if you have a group of marketeers who probably get together on Zoom quite a lot, you can probably maintain the spirit of the marketing department. But developers who always have kind of like their isolation to work in comfort. I mean, I recently heard a couple of people who run software development groups say, well, I call in to my software developer, you know, just once in a while, and they would accept a Zoom call and they don't put on their camera. And then after a while they say, "What? why are you calling? You know? And I think you know, there is a certain amount of difference, probably department from department or group from group. And trying to get those software developers is not just about a purpose. I do think you're going to have to get them together from time to time. The one thing is that I was reminded in this whole discussion, when we went to Yahoo a long time ago, this was when Marissa Meyer had come from Google and became the CEO. I remember one of the first things she did is she says, I don't want people to work from home. I want them to go back to the office. And I thought that was such an old school reflex. But I, I do believe that at a certain point, we're going to have to build in those mechanisms where people are actually going to see each other. Else, it's going to be very, it won't work with purpose alone. That's what I think. I fully agree. I think absolutely. I'm a big fan of people in the office. I just don't think it will work with a rule. Mm -hmm. So companies will have to be more creative in getting and being the department of software developers, being the marketeers. They will have to be a lot more creative than a, a one-fits-all rule to say, hey, we have free sandwiches uh, during lunch, so be here. Um, so I think indeed combining that personality and having personalized experiences, building community, building that belonging that Stephen just mentioned at the office, I think that's really the task that companies are up for to make sure that people want to be in that place uh, instead of uh, behind their desk. But fully agree that will be a big measure of success for companies going forward, I think. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a flip in mentality for both businesses, but you see the same thing happening with employees. Uh, Pascal, if you look to China, the mentality was 996, work from 9 to 9, 12 hours a day, six days a week, 996. I remember that we were there in one company. I don't remember which one it was, but they were basically laughing with us Europeans. Eh? They said, we're working from 9 to 9, six days a week. And you guys, on Thursday afternoon, your weekend already starts. Eh? You're already looking at the weather report. And when the weather is nice, you say, hey, on Friday, how about the lunch outside on a nice, in a nice place? And you don't work anymore. So it's very easy for us to outwork you guys. And, and by the way, we have more people as well. So you're doomed. I remember this one guy saying that. But now this week, I saw that there's a new trend popping up that a lot of young Chinese people started with the lying flat movement where they're like, we don't want to be in that 996 mentality anymore. Are things changing? Is this a flip in mentality for the Chinese workforce? Yeah, there's a no, definitely a big change happening. Uh, it's happening with the Generation Z, the youngsters. And there's a silent protest against what you just said, the 996. 
And 996 uh, in the past is when you're lucky to have a company that doesn't want you to work more than 996. <laughs> so in China, they often refer to the 007, which means you have basically your life is the company. But that is now uh, Jack Ma who created that, uh, that reverse trend. Uh, 996 uh, was what he said is what should be the norm, specifically at tech companies. And he got a lot of engineers, uh, because we were talking about engineers, uh, saying, no way, we're not going to do that. And so this started a trend slowly. But since just two months, we've seen this lying flat, what we call movement in the West. But Chinese don't call it a movement. They call it a, a silent protest because it's not like going on the streets and rebelling against the fact that this is too hard work. But they just basically stop working. And that's a little bit like a, a strike in the West, you could say. They're saying, why would we work? Why even try? And, and this is a protest against the 996, but also everything around it. The second generation, very rich people in China, they got a lot of benefits, meaning that their parents are giving them jobs or referring or they're giving them seed money to start their company. And so everybody in the lower middle class is kind of left out. And they feel that there's this glass ceiling now that the rich has taken all the good positions and the good jobs and, and they refer each other and, and the lower middle class can't get up. And that's where it happens in the generations that. And there's also this whole traditional thing where the parents are still pressuring them to get a great job, go to the university. This Gaokao, which is the yearly exam in university every year, just happened uh, last week. And there was 11 million people trying to get into university. And parents work like three years nonstop, uh, 996, to support their children to pass this university. So a lot of pressure from society, a lot of pressure from the tech companies, a lot of pressure from also the government who wants this national rejuvenation, which means Xi Jinping once said, I think it was a year ago, working hard is like honorable and this is what we like to do as Chinese. And so this is how we're going to make the country big. And so a lot of pressure from our, all sides. And so many people... In China, young people now in the lower middle class, so people who say they kind of missed the last bus and they can't get onto the bus of the rich people, they are delaying their careers. They're studying longer or they're doing other things like hobbies. They're also delaying marrying, uh, getting a family and, and children. A house is not important anymore. They're starting to rent houses instead of looking to buy houses. They don't want a car. Mobility is great in China anyway, so there's no need for a car. And they're saying no to overtime. And that links back to the, the discussion we just had. For them, it's really about being free. And these freelance jobs is happening in China too now. China is becoming more and more a freelance economy in the generation Z. And that is also aligned with the creativity that Chinese now more want to focus on and, and do things that they like and this experience society. It's also about uh, just being happy with the minimum. You don't need more. So they're saying... We don't want to be this rich and don't want the pressure. So if we just eat noodles every day, that's fine for us. If we lay on the bed and play some games and, and when we have a job, we have a job. When we don't have a job, we don't have a job. And nobody should tell us anything. Of course, there's a lot of reactions on social media and in general by the society. Because for 2,500 years, Chinese have worked like crazy. And now people are saying we don't want to do it anymore. So definitely social media, a lot of people say this is only for the rich, not rich enough yet to not have to work, or to not get the job, but just rich enough to be able to not take a job. So the poor people, which is still 600 million people, uh, they won't be part of that class. They still want to work really hard. Many people call them losers. So that's also a new term that is starting in China. 
The government is, of course, pushing back because they want people to work hard because now is critical with the whole tensions. Uh, they censored a lot of these discussions online because they don't want people to say, yeah, we're fine to not work anymore. And then the family, that's the biggest issue. So a lot of parents are saying like, yeah, but I worked like crazy to raise you and now you're not going to work when I'm old. So how's that going to work? I mean, that's not fair towards me. And so there's a lot of internal family debates and discussions. And, and so what we see is that definitely China is becoming a more mature economy. And so there's all kinds of preferences and personal ambitions and, and, and purposes that are happening. And so this is definitely a big change for China. But there's still 600 million people that want to work hard. So I think uh, it's going to take another 30 years before this lying flat uh, community is taking over <laughs> to get China to become lazy. <laughs> okay, so they're still going to outwork us is the conclusion, basically. <laughs> <laughs> At least the next 30 years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't bet on the lying flat, but it's fascinating, Pascal, indeed, that how extreme they are in these types of reactions as well. I mean, we were talking about that balance of more flexibility, more freelance work. And then in China, it's like, or you're dead at your desk or you're lying flat and not doing anything. And of course, that's that's not the reality. And there's a lot of things in between. But I think it's fascinating to see how that evolves and to see those signals popping up that it's not one model. It's not okay for a company to decide like this is going to be your life. It's not okay for a government to decide this is going to be your life. So people are really demanding that, yeah, that menu uh, for their life to choose what do I want to do and I can be of value then to my society, to my company. I think a lot of families and societies are just really a bit stuck in how economy is evolving in this way. Yeah, and I think also the time frame, Julie, that is happening. So the pandemic has changed everything because everything suddenly went much faster. We had to change. In China, I've known this change for the past 30 years. And so these 30 years, there's like three generations living together with other ambitions, futures and past uh, experiences. And so if you cram all that together in 10, 20 years, which is really the transformation of China the past uh, two decades, then that's where things really explode. And, and somehow, yeah, it will define or redefine uh, how we work, that's for sure. And China will come up with some new ideas, I'm sure, as well. So this, this is looking uh, quite promising. Well, we've been talking a lot about China in this episode, but let's jump to the other side of the ocean. Let, let's look at the US, huh? because we have a new president there, Mr. Biden who looks at China and definitely sees China as a threat, is trying to convince Europe about that same conclusion. And Peter, you've been following this. I know you have a strong opinion about this as well. What's the US going to do? Uh, what's their game plan to win from China? Because we all know that they like to be the biggest one and the largest one in everything. And that seems to become difficult if we hear all these evolutions from China that Pascal is sharing. How's the US looking at this? Well, the U.S. certainly doesn't think that China is just laying flat. I mean, that's for sure. They uh, they have the complete opposite view. And in that way, I think the policy under Trump and Biden is actually incredibly similar. I think there's a lot of consistency in the way that they see the world. I think Trump might have been a little bit more vocal because, in all honesty, Trump basically said to Europe, you're on your own. We're going to focus on uh, battling and beating China. And Biden says, no, that's not a good idea. We need the Europeans on our side to help basically fight China. I think that's the biggest difference. But in my opinion, one of the most important things that happened recently is that the U.S. 
Senate approved a bill, which is an investment of a whopping $250 billion in core technology innovation. To give you an idea how big that is, that is a quarter of a trillion dollars that is going to be spent in things like chips and artificial intelligence and quantum computing and synthetic biology and the space race. Pascal has been very vocal over the last couple of years on China 2025 and the ambitions of the Chinese to become the most innovative nation on the planet. And I think finally the U.S. has woken up to that reality. I think they're starting to see that they are lagging behind in a number of key innovation scientific research areas. And what is fascinating about this bill is usually the Democrats and the Republicans are at each other's throats. And this was a bipartisan bill. So this is across the aisles, the Democrats and the Republicans actually said, we are going to work together. And $250 billion is still a shitload of money. To give you an idea, we've all been talking a lot about DARPA. I mean, the famous Defense Advanced Research Project Agency that gave us GPS and the internet and the self-driving car. We've often seen as the beating heart of Silicon Valley. To give you an idea in perspective, the DARPA budget every year is $3.4 billion. 3.4. This is $250 billion. And the 250, they, Peter, is that spread over an amount of time? What, absolutely, what's the deal? Yeah. Oh, okay. And it's spread over and in, in terms of time and also in terms of, of focal areas. But what is interesting there is that they want to revitalize a number of industries. One of them is the chip industry, of course. I mean, what has happened there is that the U.S. has completely lost the game in terms of the chip race. We had companies like Intel 30, 40 years ago that were king of the hill. And then actually it became companies like ARM and now it's the Chinese. Chip manufacturing. I mean, the very heart of chip manufacturing today is in Taiwan because TSMC is the largest chip foundry in the world. And what you see is that both in chip design and in chip production, the U.S. has completely fallen behind. Now of the $250 billion, more than $50 billion is going to go to the semiconductor industry in itself. I mean, what is ironic is the U.S. invented the semiconductor industry in Silicon Valley, and then now all of a sudden they feel, oh, we're dead, and you know, they need $50 billion to revitalize it. What I find interesting is that it's not just the bill with a lot of money. Uh, They've also said, well, we think that a company like Intel, for example, could really be the coordinator of that. So they're basically giving the $50 billion for Intel to help figure out how to do it. And that's pretty interesting because they're giving it to a pretty old school company, in my respect. And the first thing that you saw is that Intel is now going to Europe and is using the wonderful DVD et impera technique, you know, divide and conquer. And you know, the CEO of Intel is gonna to go to Macron and say, well, how much are you willing to give me if I wanna build a little factory here in France? And he goes to Merkel and you know, he's probably gonna to go to Rutten and he's go to probably even Boris Johnson. And what you see is that they're actually playing the diversity of Europe at the same time. Now, what is interesting about the bill is, first of all, it was bipartisan. So Republicans and Democrats really aligned on this, and they're aligned on their fear and hatred of China. The second of all, they're going to create a new directorate of technology in the National Science Foundation to help coordinate that. But also very clear in the bill are two interesting things. One, it is very clear that they don't want all of this money to go back to Boston and Silicon Valley, which are the two really big areas of technology innovation in the U.S. They really want to have regional tech hubs. 
And I think this is interesting because it also shows that the U.S. has realized that for a long time, what they had is two extremes, you know, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. But, you know, nothing happened in the middle of the country. And they really want to revitalize and use a lot of that money to revitalize, you know, some of the lesser parts of the U.S. as well and focus on innovation. But then what happened is with any type of bill in the U.S., things get added on and you have all these lobby groups and you have all these people trying to get a little bit of that pot of money. And one of the controversial ones is there is $10 billion allocated for the lunar program. And many people said, oh my God, this is the Bezos bailout because this is for companies like you know, uh, Blue Origin from Jeff Bezos who are going to take some of that you know, money and then make sure that his ambitions in space are going to get realized. And this is what you now have. It's a very clear initiative of the US to do something about China, but then it's like every type of government initiatives, it's honeypots here and who gets part of the cake and how are they going to distribute that? And I'm not really sure if the US is capable of really leveraging the full potential of that. Now, even with the $250 billion, if you look at what the U.S. spends on R&D in percentage of GDP, even with the 250, they're only going to be at half of what China spends on R&D. So, you know, it's, in my opinion, a very interesting thing to watch. It clearly shows that the U.S. has woken up and realize that the world is different. They're no longer the most innovative nation in the world. And in that sense, it's quite a dramatic show that I think they really realize that they are far behind. Yeah, let's let's repeat the enthusiasm, Peter, that the fact that they finally agree on something is a heartening fact, I would say. Um, but it's a fact that's against something. It's not pro something they're building. It's not the American dream story. We talked about belonging in terms of companies before, but I think that what we've seen in the past decade as well is that Americans are looking for what do I belong to? What is the dream that we are investing in? This indeed looks like the thing that they did 50 years ago as well. Uh, let's reinvest in technology. But it kind of struck me like this is more of the same. And of course, that's important. But how are they going to leverage that investment to create more an American culture within companies? Like it just matters that nothing of this is going to softer sides of investment. It's always hard tech, which I love, of course. But I wonder how are they going to bring that hard tech to people that are living everywhere in America and believe in that story? Because they're just going to feel that in 20 years with a racket on the moon, you would say. But um, yeah, but I, I think it has a lot of repercussions. Um, I mean, to give you an idea, the, the amount of money that Biden is spending on infrastructure is just incredible. So this is very much focused on maintaining their tech dominance, but then figuring out how to spread it. I think a lot of the other measures are going to come into account. So there's a talk of a, in total, two trillion spending of the Biden administration in infrastructure. And one of the things, for example, is improving the transportation system. If you, if you go to, you know, the inner heart of the U.S., I mean, the way that trucks have been run is basically been the same for 40, 50 years. And they want to invest in better infrastructure and have more, you know, data-rich clever infrastructure where they can think about smart solutions and think about optimizing supply chains. And, you know, it's not just going to be about making sure that Intel can make better chips. They also want to make the roads and the infrastructure smarter and then, you know, have really a more clever way of maybe tackling at the same time innovation and efficiency and at the same time maybe reducing CO2. And I think this is something where you can clearly see the U.S. is now on a massive spending spree. I do agree with you. I mean, how do you translate that into, you know, a next generation? 
you mentioned you know, what happened in the Cold War. When you talk about DARPA, DARPA was created in 1958 as a result of the Sputnik, and, and it was the Cold War. And we know what DARPA did for the U.S. economy and innovation. What many people don't realize, at the same time that in 1958 they created DARPA, which had the focus on high tech, very similar to the bill now, they also had the National Defense Education Act of 1958. And that was massive investment in education. And the reason is they said, we're going to lose the space race with the Russians if we don't have high tech and if we don't educate our people. And it was fascinating because they invested in five things in 1958, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, STEM, like we have now, and languages, because they said, if we're not going to invest in languages, we're not going to have good spies who speak Russian if we want to invade Russia. Fascinating. But what happened is it revitalized the education in the U.S., and in 15 years, the amount of people who went to college more than tripled. And I believe they won the space race because of high tech and education. And at this moment, you're 100% right, it's only high tech. And I really am very curious how it's going to play out in the bigger part of society. Yeah. And we have, it's funny how history is repeating itself. And we have another space race. Uh, since when was it yesterday that the Chinese said we want to go with people to Mars in 2033, was what they said. I can imagine that today in the Oval Office, they're saying we want to go in 2032. Uh, so uh, it's, it's all happening over and over again. So it's going to be interesting who wins this. China has a space station now, and they just sent three people uh, to go and dock there. So they docked. So yes, everything is happening true. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about China when it comes to this bill about the U.S. because it would take too long to explain how China views this whole bill. But uh, I, I completely agree with Julie that uh, the missing link in my view and with Peter is, is education. I think that is the strongest part of uh, America. And if you look just at the number of Chinese students that went to study in America because of the education, not focusing on that, I think is a big uh, mistake, if I could say. And of course, technology is important. But the other part, if you don't have the soft part and only focus on the hard part and on technology, I mean, China is outspending the U.S. Uh, two to three times on that part. So it's going to be really hard. Now, talking about education, Julie, you wanted to talk about two educational events that happened in the U.S., a new school in L.A. by Dr. Dre and a School of Humanity by Raya. How serious are these initiatives? What are they about? Um, is this a new trend or is this a standalone initiative? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's a great bridge, I think, to our prior point of the importance of uh, where is education going and, and mm -hmm. uh, how should we go about that? Um, and the numbers obviously will have to follow. I think these two initiatives are not government-led, absolutely not. Uh, and it's interesting to see that somebody as Dr. Dre is launching a school. He's actually opening a new high school in, the, in South L.A., I mean, Stephen, you know that we're going to L.A. in, in the fall yeah. because why? It's this epicenter of creativity. And I think that's going to be a very important word in the decade to come and also in education because we've not been trained or educated to be creative. We've been trained to learn things by heart and to learn math and technology and hard score skills, but not really a lot of attention is going to softer skills or to creative uh, skills. 
I think it's just uh, seeing signals like that, opening a high school that goes about, I mean, they describe themselves as groundbreaking uh, approach that combines design, business and technology, but also with hands-on real world learning with young leaders, innovators and entrepreneurs. I mean, my high school wasn't mentioning that. I didn't see one entrepreneur in there. So I think it's it's just um, fascinating to see where these initiatives are coming from if the government is not spending initiative there or, or money there. And um, basically one of our close allies at Nextworks, uh, Raya Bichari, she's not US-based, she's uh, based in Dubai. She actually launched a fully digital high school which is completely student-led. So it's not age-based, it's not fixed, it's just a curriculum where you choose what career path you do, do you want to follow? Which skill do you want to follow? What talent do you want to have? And it goes about things, for example, if you're looking at skills, hey, how am I a better system thinker, for example, which is still something fairly conservative, I would say, but also the you can learn to be a technology ethicist or how do you do art with AI or how do you design space settlements? But I think that's the sort of dreaming that should be allowed as well in education. And I'm not sure where it's going to go. I, I think it's just fascinating to observe that signals are popping up worldwide from not institutional parties to move the needle a little bit there. So I'm curious what will happen next. I'm really excited about this project. I think um, it's it's going to be fascinating to see, I think, how it's going to play out. And I think see the opportunity to completely rethink some of the educational things that have been cast in stone for such a long time. So it's really a network approach that she's trying to education. It's a global approach. And um, yeah, I think she started with the summer schools. It's now going into a full-blown high school project. I think this is one of the coolest things to watch. Cool. <laughs> For our almost final topic, I would like to go to Belgium. Uh, we don't often talk about Belgian initiatives, but I think this week there was something really cool that happened. There's this really fascinating partnership between Telco here in Belgium, Proximus, and one of the financial services companies, Belfius. And they've been teaming up for more than a year now. And during this fall, we're going to see one of the very first exciting results of that partnership. Proximus, the telco player, will launch a full digital bank. The name is Banks. The telco launches it, but it's fully powered by Belfius. And this is going to be a unique experiment. It's, it's interesting to see that a telco is launching a bank. And I think it's part of a broader strategy of Proximus to become more a broader partner in life, in the life of their customers. And now they're launching a bank, but a couple of weeks ago, they launched an app in the healthcare sphere. So you see how they're diversifying their offering and their services. Now, this digital bank will be extremely, extremely convenient. It's based on digital interactions between friends, making sure that it's very easy to pay each other just with one click or by showing your face when you go on a restaurant together. It's going to be very easy to open an account. So that's all about the convenience part. It's what you would expect of a digital bank as well. The thing that I find really exciting is that they're launching a new concept. It's called slow banking. And it's basically making sure that everyone will know what their carbon footprint is based on their spending behavior. So everyone that will use banks will have this CO2 dashboard individually made that will tell you the impact of your purchases. And they're using the technology here of Economy, which is a Swedish startup. They started in 2018. And their focus is to make it very transparent to see what your personal impact on society is. 
And this company knows based on their research that by giving people this personalized CO2 dashboard, that your impact will decrease with 50%. So you will have a 50% lower carbon footprint because of the transparency. And this is the first financial application that we have in Belgium that will do that. This is one of the first in Europe. There's an Italian bank who already is using it. MasterCard is experimenting with it. But this is a new trend. It's like Pascal, you mentioned that Alibaba is sharing that as well. Here we have this experiment that wants to make people more aware of the impact of their purchases. And I'm very curious to see how the market will react. But I think it's an interesting trend to increase that transparency and basically involve your customers in adding value to society so that they know what their impact is and you facilitate better behavior of your customers by including that service in a digital bank. So I thought that was really innovative. So I hope for them this is going to be a huge hit. Yeah, and, and maybe if I can add a little bit on to that, of course, as you probably know, I'm a board member of Belfius. So um, I knew about this initiative a while back. I think what you see in general is that both the telco side and the banking side have been in quite a turbulent evolution over the last couple of years because the telco felt an erosion in their traditional presence and business because they became very much a commodity. I mean, telco was something really special 20 years ago because, you know, your first smartphone and your the idea of SIM cards, and then it became kind of boring because basically it becomes a commodity. And we had very similar things in banking, because if you remember the excitement a couple of years ago, every bank had to do mobile banking, and that was a differentiator. But now all the mobile banking apps are probably almost the same. And I think what you saw is that it was really wonderful for two players to come together and think about, can we actually together create something that is entirely new? As you know, Belfius is a state-owned bank. Proximus has the state as its majority shareholder. But it's interesting to see two businesses linked to the government actually coming together to become really, really creative. And what they wanted to do is not just build something that was a unique offering. There haven't been that many telco banks around the world. This is actually one of the few. I mean, it's really, you can count it on one hand, but I think what they're doing is really trying to build a proposition for a customer that is truly unique by the combination of finance and networks. That is, I think, something that is radically new. But at the same time, they wanted to go beyond, and they probably read your book, Stephen. So, you know, doing good for the bigger picture and trying to build an offer you can't refuse is something that they took at heart. Actually, this is something that uh, the bank has been doing for a while under the radar. They really took a look at the sustainable development goals and figured out in which of these you know, categories can we make a difference. And what we're trying to do with the sustainability element is just one of it. But for example, if we want to offer opportunities for investment going forward, if we want to, you know, because as we know, if you put your money on a savings account, it doesn't actually save anymore. I mean, it's something which is part of the economic reality of the fact that we have such low interest rates. But if we're you know, now going to entice people to maybe invest we want these investments to actually contribute to a better planet as well. 
So it's not just about measuring what you do in terms of your footprint, but also can you actually actively contribute to a better world? And I think this is an exciting opportunity. Mm-hmm. Two businesses coming together, reinventing something that is, I think, a unique experience for the customer, but at the same time trying to do something good. So this would be, uh, I think, a really good chapter in your next book, guys. <laughs> well, it's I, I like the idea that you mentioned about commodity markets. There are many commodity markets, and it's very difficult for some industries to differentiate towards customers. A lot are are just in a billing relationship. Look at utility, look at insurances, uh, look at telco, as you mentioned. And in the model of the Offer Your Country Fuse, I work with these two ways out, partner in life by offering broader services that go beyond just your basic offering and then adding value to society. And this is the way out. And they're working on those two, both Belfius and Proximus. And I think that's an extremely smart move of them, very smart strategy. Yeah, I find it uh, extremely interesting, Peter, what you said about Proximus and, and Belfius that are both partially government-owned and that they work together and uh, and do something very creative. It sounds like the Chinese model in a way, <laughs> uh, because most companies in China are somehow linked to the government. And indeed, the combination of relationship and network with uh, the creativity and technology and everything that uh, the the finance part that the companies have is the winning part. And it's interesting you say that because I just uh, suddenly came to the realization that one of the reasons that China is so much focused on sustainability is also to do with that social goal that these companies in the state enterprises have. They have to do a social good thing when it comes to their purpose uh, of being in business. And so maybe there's something to think about that actually the fact that they are government owned is in this case maybe a, a good thing partially because it could help them to put their goals right when it comes to saving the planet and do good for people. Well, I think this is where maybe Europe is capable of being extremely creative in the next decades because I think if you look at the two extremes, China, as you said, there's a very close relationship between government policy and private enterprise. We talked earlier about the U.S. where you know the whole idea of government in the U.S. is to actually do as little as possible to impede free enterprise. In Europe, we have an interesting combination in between. And finding out how we can maximize the impact of that, I think if we do it right, uh, we're going to find a good combination, Pascal. But um, there's a lot to be done. So I think we need to spend another radar episode (laughs) just on the European policymaking in that respect. Let's end with celebrating it. I think it's a great initiative to see, uh, to the prior point of the U.S., it's not against something. It's about building something better and a better experience. So I can only be positive and enthusiastic about that. So good topic on Belgium, Stephen. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, we we should do that more often. But this was a really cool one. We couldn't just forget about this one. Um, Maybe just a, a last item before we round this episode off. It's basically, Peter, you told me that you had a question for Pascal about uh, Bitcoin mining in China. That's going to be our last segment of today. Yeah, and as you probably know, I'm a crypto enthusiast. Mm-hmm. Um, I follow it very, very closely, and my heart skipped a few beats in the last couple of weeks <laughs> when I saw the Bitcoin price just taking an absolute dive. <laughs> and everybody points to China because all of a sudden, I mean, the the roller coaster up and down love hate relationship of China with crypto has always baffled me. I mean. 
first you had Xi Jinping who said, no, this is really bad. And then he said, hey, wait a minute, blockchain, what a great idea. <laughs> and then now he's saying, no, crypto mining, really bad. And all these Bitcoin miners in rural China. And, and you know, what happened recently, and that's what I want to ask Pascal, is that you know, all of a sudden, and that was the big, big dip in Bitcoin price over the last couple of days, is that the Chinese central bank said they were going to investigate and identify bank accounts that were facilitating crypto trading. So reaching out to all the big Chinese banks and even Alipay. And at the same time, there was really a crackdown on the rural part of China where, let's be honest, 60, 70% of all the Bitcoin mining is done in China, where you have hydroelectricity that is relatively cheap and that can power all these miners. And all of a sudden, China says, we're going to do a crackdown, and that just sent Bitcoin whoom, going all the way down. So, Pascal, why? <laughs> well, uh, this is uh, not the first time, indeed, just like you said, that China is, uh, is getting very worried about cryptocurrency in general. I mean, it's, it goes all the way back to 2013, where the bankers in China were not allowed to trade uh, cryptocurrency. And then in 2017, they blocked uh, ICOs. That was illegal then to have ICOs. So you couldn't actually create your own currency or, or cryptocurrency. And then they were constantly looking at how is this going. Now, this is a year, this year, where there's a few things happening. And the combination of these things makes that China is enforcing this even further. One is, of course, the digital currency that China is coming out with themselves. And so you could call it a competition with the cryptocurrency in a way because they want to have as much control as they can on their own currency and they want people to use it. And so that's a big trend happening now. And this is something that is unstoppable. But the other thing is also to do with the energy needs right now. And so the reason that Bitcoin mining was happening in China was because indeed a lot of cheap energy in China because they wanted to help the rural areas to elevate. And so they got cheaper energy to make sure that these west of China could develop faster. On top of it, 80% of all that mining happens with renewable energy. So hydro, uh, there's also solar and, and wind power. And, and But the problem is many of these renewable energies in the past years were not connected to the grid to get to the cities like Shanghai and Beijing. And so they had an oversupply in energy in one part of the country and on the other part of the country, they had it over demand. And so this was good for Bitcoin to solve that problem temporarily, but also it was just cheap so people went there. And now today, of course, there's a whole agenda on sustainability and CO2 emissions. And so they wanna make sure that uh, not all the energy that is now able to get to Shanghai and Beijing is now used for Bitcoin instead of giving them to the families so that in the winter, which they experienced last year, they had no heating in some places. Uh, so this because the, there was a problem uh, with the war between Australia and China on coal. And so this is a whole complex thing, but China has decided they need to really stop this energy usage. Uh, so that's one thing. The digital currency is another thing. And then finally, I think the third reason why is really because China, as a number of other countries, is still a capital control country. And that means they don't want capital to flow out of the country just like we can do in the West. There's other countries like Vietnam, there's India, there's Russia that also have some capital control. And so most of the countries that have a lot of capital control are not very friendly to cryptocurrency because that's the way to get your money out of the country. And China wants <clears throat> the rich people to invest the money back into the country, not invest it in Silicon Valley, for example, except if that technology comes back to China at one point. So I think the combination of these three things 
made that China said, now we're going to enforce it. Now, it's not a law. So actually, it's not illegal to hold cryptocurrency in China. So you can hold cryptocurrency. You just can't trade it. And, and so if you can't trade it, what that means is that all these Chinese now have gone overseas to set up these trading uh, platforms overseas. And also now the mining will just go to the U.S. and other places. And it's going to be interesting to see how that's going to impact the environment in the U.S. in the years to come. But the reality is that it's just shifting. So you don't need a permission to mine Bitcoin. Anybody can do it. And that means that China does it now and then in the future somebody else. So it will rebound. I mean, I hope I'm not a predictor of Bitcoin price, but, but it's not because of China. But it does tell you something about when China makes a decision, the world is shaking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Clearly what you said, the, the one thing that resonated most is that, you know, all this hydroelectricity, all of a sudden the Chinese said, it was fun to do Bitcoin mining, but now we need the heat. So uh, mm -hmm. just you know, <laughs> turn it off and we'll use it for some real stuff. So uh, interesting to observe, that's for sure. All right. Thanks, Pascal, for that. And uh, thanks to Julie, Pascal, Peter for sharing all your wisdom here in this Radar episode. We're going to close this one down. As mentioned in the beginning, this is the last one of this season. We're going to be back in September. Please share this episode, like it, tell your friends about it, give us a nice review. And then we hope to see you and hear you again in September. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website, nextworks.com, to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.